My absolute favorite quote of Albert Einstein was when he said, the most powerful force in the universe is, guess what? I'm asking you. Oh, is this a question? I, I, I didn't know I was. I didn't know I was being tested today. I thought I was. Gonna... Yeah, the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. <laughs> really? As a banker, I can get behind that one. <laughs> I don't understand the theory of relativity, but I certainly understand compound <laughs> compound interest. interest. <laughs> <laughs> he was not only a scientist; he was a comedian. So. <laughs> This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might find expressions of hope in daily life. Guests on this show are not authorities, they're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide the guests freedom to talk, and let them determine the direction of the conversation. I only ask you to listen, and to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show. Mr. Kenobi goes to Scott County. I noticed a trend on Ordinary Voices. My guests have mostly been liberal in their approach to life, faith, and government. It hasn't been intentional, but I needed to break this pattern, and Tony Kenobi seemed like a great candidate. I first met Tony when we recruited him to be on the camp board of directors. He was in the process of unvolunteering himself from other boards so he could spend more time with family. However, when his kids found out he was asked to be on the board of their camp, they demanded he serve. Tony is kind of a unique bird. He's a simple down-home Iowa guy who plays trombone in a 70s cover band called Identity Crisis, where, by the way, he's known for leading the conga line. We recruited him for his financial expertise, but soon discovered he had this amazing talent and passion for rebuilding John Deere tractors. Tony is Catholic, conservative, and Republican. Beyond that, I'll let him tell you the rest of the story. Give us a, not a, an extensive history, but uh, uh, um, <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> birth to here in five minutes or less, less and you're on the clock now. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up on a farm in in Western Iowa. I was one of five kids. Um, Dad was one of twelve. Mom was one of eleven. So family was you know huge. You know then it was a decent sized farm, half a section. Today that'd be pretty small. But Dad raised cattle and hogs, corn and beans. Pretty typical Iowa farmer. And, what's, a, uh, what's a half a section mean? Um, a section would be a one mile by one mile square. Okay. And so this was a half a mile by a mile uh, farm. And went off to Iowa State to get a degree in ag business and assuming that I'd be able to come back and farm uh, with dad at some point, which, you know, I mean, if, if you understand my relationship with dad, you'd, you'd know how much, you know, that mattered to me. I mean, he's just my absolute hero. But, um, you know, graduating in 1982, the farm crisis was full bore 
and had that conversation with dad and realized that, you know what, um, it's not in the cards right now. He wasn't ready to retire and there wasn't enough for two families. And so I went off to find another career, looked at a number of them, but chose uh, uh, or was offered a job in banking uh, here in Davenport, working for what was then Davenport Bank. You know, did a little farm lending, always wanted to go back and farm, but, you know, never really. The farm crisis lasted long enough that, you know, banking got its hooks in me and provided a nice, uh, decent living. And um, today here I am, you know, retired or at least now semi-retired and uh, from banking and uh, doing some hobby farming, which is an absolute blast. Uh, we'll, we'll raise 20 acres of, of wheat and barley this year and uh, and sell it to a local uh, whiskey distiller. And um, for cash, mind you, this is no barter. This is all on the up and up. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're not selling it to Grandma, who's making mash in the back 40, no, right? <laughs> no, exactly. Tony's hobby farm only adds to his appeal. The local whiskey distiller he sells his wheat and barley to is the Mississippi River Distilling Company in LeClaire, Iowa. It's down the street from Antique Archaeology, the home store of Mike Wolf, host of the TV show American Vickers. You, you obviously enjoyed banking because you... Um, uh, worked on it long enough to retire. There were certainly days that I loved banking. I loved helping customers. I loved leading the team. I love, you know, solving problems and fixing things. It's it's to the point now where the regulatory pressure is is so extreme and and at times ridiculous that you know I sound like the stereotypical grumpy old man. You know, oh the good old days and it's not what it used to be. And there's some of that, but. Um, um, it was a it was a great career. It was a fun career. I still talk about we, um, and it's been a year and a half that I've been retired. For people that don't aren't in banking, mm-hmm. what is the kind of example when you say there's just so much um, regulatory procedures or guidelines now? What what? What is an example of that? Well, uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples on kind of both extremes of complexity. One uh, came out of the Patriot Act following 9-11 um, with the absolute mission of, of stamping out uh, fraud and money laundering and those kind of things where, you know, I'd have to look a customer, a, a 40-year customer in the eye and say, I know you want to open a checking account, but you got to give me your ID and two other forms of, you know, your driver's license and two other forms of ID. And he'd look at me and say, Tony, you've known me for 30 years. This mm-hmm. is what the hell, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and the only explanation is it's the law and the law has changed and here's why. And, you know, every small town banker would say, well, you know, fraud doesn't exist in our town. And I would say, well, yes, it does. Um, you know, it is everywhere, and there are reasons for it, but it's just, it makes life hard. I struggled to make sense of this one when I first listened to Tony describe the changes in banking regulations. Really? Asking for two forms of ID is some great hassle? Boy, you really are a grumpy old man. But it started to make sense to me as he continued to talk. 
Let's let this one play out and listen for what Tony is trying to say. The, the more extreme or the more complicated example um, has to do with, uh, in, in my past world, commercial lending and how, you know, every little facet of it is scrutinized and ultimately so, but um, uh, by regulators and uh, the, the pressure on banks not to mess up on any single loan is so extreme that the, the ability to, to I don't want to say take a gamble, but to, to stretch it a little bit with a customer is a mortal sin uh, these days in banking. You know, the people that we were approaching within the bank to uh, get loans approved um, had this extreme pressure from regulators. And, you know, who are they going to take it out on? Well, the front line and the customers. Um, not intentionally, but it's just the nature of the beast. In order for a community to be healthy, supportive, and vibrant, people within the community need to trust each other. It doesn't matter how small or large that community is. Requiring two forms of ID might seem a very small and basic thing, but it's not. Tony's no longer serving a person with a family and a business with a dream. He's working with an ID number and a loan classification. It's infinitely easier for someone higher up to make decisions on a number rather than a person. Worse, from the initial contact, the relationship is built upon suspicion. Suspicion breeds distrust, and distrust produces fear. We've lost sight of how things like banking are a community builder. Tony will, without realizing it, describe the result of viewing life this way. So let's listen. What I hear when you're talking in that answer is the regulations are affecting the personal relationship between the banker and the lender or the banker and his customer. Is that, would that be a fair? Absolutely. In part, your mission becomes don't end up on the front page. Don't screw up because the actions of one person can bring an institution to its knees through the power of the press, through the power of social media, through the power of whatever it is that's you know, uh, there's no filter anymore for, for news. You, you got to be so careful. And when you're that focused on being careful, it, it comes at the expense of flexibility and and just being able to take care of customers in a common sense manner. So right. it doesn't matter what side of the aisle or where you stand politically. The left looks to get the right. The right looks to get the left. We celebrate when our opponents um uh, screw up or lose or, or you know, in, in some way get kicked back on their heels, even if it's our t- to our detriment. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it could be not for the good of the country, but if the other side loses, we celebrate. And we're like, really? That's kind of stupid, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. but that's the way the system is, you know, operating anyway. When you complain about an issue on Facebook, do you think of the issue or the friend who doesn't agree with you? When we think only of the issue, our words are bitter. They seek to condemn and destroy. However, if we think of our friends, we tend to soften those words in an attempt to maintain the relationship and find common ground. Our national mission right now is don't screw up. 
It's hard to find happiness in life with a mission like that. Since this is the case, it leads me to ask my next question. What in the world led you to want to run for office? <laughs> um, I did not. Um, you know, really, it happened upon the um, urging of some of the community leaders in the Quad Cities who came to me and said, hey, you know, there's going to be a couple of supervisors retiring this next year, and we'd love to see you run. And I said no, and and they, you know, more of them kept pestering me, and I started looking into it and found everybody telling me that, hey, if you're going to be in public office, that's the office to hold. And the one question I asked them all was, uh, tell me about your worst day um, serving as a as county supervisor. And they really struggled to come up with any any examples or, or the fact that they really had bad days. Yeah, they were tough decisions, but no sleepless nights, no, you know, none of that. You know, I certainly had a few sleepless nights as a banker, so that, you know, relatively speaking, it sounded <laughs> sounded okay, you know. How many su- county supervisors are there? There are five um, okay. in our county. There are, you know, interestingly, there are, of course, it's always an odd number so that you don't have a tie vote on anything. And some counties in Iowa, there's three, and others there's five. I don't know if there's any more than that in Iowa. It, across the river in Rock Island County, there are there were, I think, in the high 20s, something like that. Um, different system where every township had its own supervisor. It turned out to be a very ineffective um, system, and they're making changes to that as we speak. Hold on, but, wait a minute. A political system in Illinois being ineffective? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, oh, I Redundant. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me show you my shock face. I apologize for the gratuitous joke at the expense of the great people of Illinois. I simply couldn't resist. But you know you're a little vulnerable on that one. Bad pastor. Just bad, bad pastor. Uh, Open meeting laws uh, are such that if a majority of you, a quorum, so to speak, um, are in the same room together, it has to be announced and it has to be publicized and in an open meeting uh, to the public. You know, no more than two of us can ever talk at the same time unless it's a board meeting. Really? Um, Yeah, absolutely. There's all these little sidebar conversations going on all the time. You know, I got to call her and I got to call him and I got to talk to her and and him about this and whatever. Now, imagine if there's three supervisors. You can't even do that. The only time you can discuss anything is in an open meeting. Wow. Now, I imagine didn't know if you had to run any organization that you're part of in making decisions. Say it's back in your Camp Shalom days and we had to have a board meeting and decide upon important issues like buying land or building something or whatever. If it was in public, every single one of those, and you couldn't call me to talk to me about it ahead of time. That would be difficult. Uh, Paralyzing it would be. Yes, paralyzing is a very good word, yeah. Yeah. So I'm thankful that we have five because we can at least have sidebar conversations. Not that there's anything to, any big secrets, but you you just got to vet stuff. You got to, you know, what did he mean when he said that? What did 
what was she trying to get across? I'm, I'm not sure I understood that. How did you hear that? You know, those kind of conversations. If you publicly say, what if we tried this? That be, that's going to be on the front page tomorrow. Hmm. You know, yeah. Kenobi supports. No, I didn't say I support. I just I'm wondering out loud about an idea. And, and are there reporters at that meeting at every meeting then too? Almost. Yeah. Every virtually every meeting that I've been to. Um, I was used to that to some extent because I've served for a few years on the county's planning and zoning commission. The open meeting laws are great. They're necessary and they were designed to keep people informed. However, in a world full of suspicion and distrust, they become vulnerable to manipulation. It leaves me wondering, how do we go about rebuilding trust and community in a don't-screw-up world? Don't be too hopeless, Tony sheds great light on how government does work, and a surprising lesson he learned through a tense controversy. Let's listen. And we dealt with some, you know, a couple of controversial subjects in the last year or two. What was a controversial subject there? What would that be something we, like? We went through, it's a, it's a long story, I'll try to make short, but um, we went through the entire um, planning document that, that really addresses, you know, the different types of, of um, zones, be that residential, commercial, industrial, whatever. There was an application by a big fertilizer plant uh, a few years ago. And it was very controversial, you know, not viewed with any kind of embracing by uh, its would-be neighbors because, you know, who wants a big fertilizer plant next to them? The other issue was that um, they were seeking uh, to purchase some prime, prime farmland to build this plant. And you, I think, have an appreciation, and I certainly do, of, of how sacred prime farmland is. And taking that out of production is not something you seek to do. And it states right in our county's land use goals that, you know, preservation of of prime farmland is one of our top priorities. Just a note to people not familiar with farming communities. Not all dirt is equal. Some soil is more productive than other types of soil. Prime farmland is the best of the best, the most nutrient-rich and growing-friendly soil available. In Scott County, Iowa, expansions of businesses and homes have largely happened on prime farmland. A farmer who sells his land for retirement can sell it for, say, $5,000 to a neighbor to keep it as a farm. Or he can sell it for $50,000 an acre to a developer. Which one do you think they choose? The need to protect prime farmland is an issue which influences people in places like Chicago and New York more than they realize. Xi Jinping president of China, has an intimate relationship with Scott County, Iowa. In 1985, he toured the county to learn more about American farming. The impact of the local Iowa farmer in Scott County is global. As we went through the planning document, we addressed, you know, how would we approach uh, some big industrial plant if it wanted to locate outside of the city limit, you know, out in potentially prime farmland in the county. Well, you know, we took our roadshow, if you will, out to um, uh, several smaller towns in the county and had open forum meetings, and we got chewed on um, pretty heartily. 
And, you know, rightfully so. Um, there were some misunderstandings about it, and there were some legitimate concerns about it. And uh, we created what we call an in, uh, floating industrial zones. I, in the end, uh, voted in favor of it. And when we took our vote, I had already announced my candidacy. And a few people came to me and said, you need to vote no. This is going to pass anyway. You need to just distance yourself from this. And I said, no, I'm voting my conscience here. And my conscience is that um, your perspective really depends upon whether, you know, you're a fourth generation farmer or you're some guy down at Kraft Foods who's about to lose his job because the plant's closing and you can't feed your family. You know, I represent all of the citizens of the county with all of their concerns and needs in mind um, and all of our land use goals in mind. The environment, economic development, preservation of farmland, mm-hmm. all of which seem to be at odds with each other right. all of a sudden. And I know there are people who probably still are upset about it and upset with me. But interestingly, as I entered my campaign, and one of the things you do is send out letters to people, your friends and relatives, begging for money so that you can afford to buy signs and advertising. Right. And I sent some letters to the people that were in those rooms basically shouting at us, including me. And it was surprising how many of them sent me a check, which was revelatory. Um, You know, I'm this Iowa nice farm kid who thinks if somebody yells at me, they hate me. Well, not necessarily. They're just passionate about some issue that we disagree about. Uh, It's important to make a distinction. Tony says so many wonderful things in this section. I think you should replay it and listen to it over and over again. One is perspective. Every person argues from a perspective. Perspectives are complicated. Tony may be passionate about prime farmland, but he needs to think about all people, including those who may lose or gain a job through his vote. Strong, vibrant, healthy communities consider all perspectives. A great lesson for us all to learn Just because someone is yelling at you or gets angry at your Facebook post does not mean they hate you. We're just passionately disagreeing about an issue. It's important to make a distinction. So don't unfriend me when I say something you don't like. Try to listen to my passion. It will help me listen to yours. I want to take a minute and thank you for listening. Ordinary Voices is a place for people searching for a spiritual meaning in daily life. We are invited into the lives of ordinary people with the thought we might find some of our own struggles in these stories, then in reflection upon them, find hope in life. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. Everything I'm doing with this podcast and the daily devotions depends upon your sharing it with someone else. People are hungry for a spiritual conversation and in deep need for hope. So go to the website OrdinaryVoices.org, OrdinaryVoices.org, to find other shows and to sign up for the daily devotions. The podcast is also available on every form of podcast provider imaginable. It makes for a great listen on a work-time commute. This is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Thank you again for listening. Now let's rejoin my interview with Tony.
the other thing that I remember you talking about that I found interesting, you you, you have a down home kind of um, straight talk. You, you didn't you didn't you came to a point where you realized you just can't talk that way, and because there's so many people listening to what you say and kind right. of jumping on you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That gave me great appreciation for running a national campaign or a, a statewide campaign. How, how paralyzing that can be when there's cameras on you and a large audience out there and somebody asks you a, a question for which there is no right answer. There's lots of nuances and, and they need a 10 second answer and it's an hour long explanation. You just about freeze trying to be so careful in how you, and no matter how you practice or, or prepare for it, you just, you know, something about that audience or that situation changes it a little bit and you want to kind of tweak exactly how you say it. And you just, you know, I, I, I really now understand watching uh, presidential candidates in a debate or on a campaign trail you know, um, or even after they're elected and, and speaking to a subject, how, how paralyzing that can be and, and how it can make, as you described me, an otherwise down-home straight shooter and um, that, that person is not here today. <laughs> you know? Personal venting here. It drives me crazy when people who never engage in public speaking criticize those who do. I've come to realize through the podcast about half of my vocabulary are words that don't even exist. People make mistakes. When a mistake is consistent, then it is no longer a mistake. However, dwelling on minor examples of misspeak only embraces the do-not-screw-up mission we live in. And people fail to take important risks that move cultures forward. You made mention the type of questions that you got asked for yeah. being in a, a county supervisor position, and you're like, you, you know, I have nothing to do with that, you know, you know. Right. Well, there's certainly some of that, but there's also, you know, the questions that are that seem outwardly pertinent, but they really don't get at whether I'm qualified or not to be in this position. In this particular election, the the hot buttons were mental health funding uh, because there's a challenge there today. Um, the, the, another question was whether the sheriff's deputies should be allowed, uh, to take their, um, uh, vehicles, um, to their homes at night and great arguments on both sides of that issue. Everyone knew by the time of the election occurred, they're pretty much going to be settled. I mean, that's just people grasping at, at smart sound sounding things to ask you and, and things that are, that are in the, in the current, um, in the current news cycle. Um, where, you know, probably better questions would be along the lines of, you know, tell us about a time where you dealt with uh, budget issues and, and uh, where there were limited resources and unlimited needs and how you made tough decisions. You know, those kind of what you'd normally find in an interview, but for whatever reason, you don't find them in a political campaign. Tony makes an interesting point here, which was really something I've never thought about. In his role at the bank, Tony did an amazing job of hiring people. When you hire someone, you need to evaluate their ability to do a job. However, during most elections, 
We ask people their opinions and not their abilities. So, for example, with Tony, people wanted to know his opinion about abortion, but not how he managed a budget. Managing a budget is his job as a county supervisor. Abortion is not in his realm. Even mental health support will be decided by a group and the resources available. Just something to think about nationally as well. I'm going to let this next clip run a little long. It's simply a great civics lesson in how government works, why lobbying is not a bad thing, and how bipartisanship is essential. Most importantly, the complexity of working out positive solutions for all people. Government is a nuanced thing, but it's still quite amazing. Let's listen to Tony talk. Uh, And then to your point, there were people asking, you know, um, social justice type questions that I will never tackle as a county supervisor. Abortion, uh, you know, those kind of things, which, yeah, I have an opinion on, but... not germane to this job, so buzz off. You know. <laughs> county, county supervisors don't establish um, abortion laws. Is that what you're yeah, trying no. to ca- communicate there? Okay. <laughs> not, not for this salary, we don't know. <laughs> was the mental health question, though, was that pertinent to the job, but just something that was going to be settled before you got into office? Um, pertinent to the job and maybe not settled before we got to office, but it became the lightning rod and it seemed to be the only thing that any group wanted to talk about. What kind of a role would the county supervisor play in the mental health decision? Yeah, good question. Um, uh, uh, probably, I think it's our second largest budget item in, in Scott County and we provide funding um, for um, mental health care for indigents. So those who don't have insurance or can't afford it on their own um, and find themselves in need of, of behavioral health services, um, go to Vera French, go to the hospitals uh, or some other providers um, uh, for mental health care. And so we provide, in, in essence, block grants, if you will, um, uh, to those organizations uh, to provide mental health care. So it's um, the issue in this election cycle is that the state uh, sets um, the maximum uh, amount of dollars that a county can can levy uh, for taxes uh, to raise uh, for mental health care. And there's some inequities from county to county. I won't go into the details, but it goes a number of years back and there's a great lobbying being done by virtually all counties and primarily the, the more urban counties um, to allow a, a more equitable um, tax levy uh, to pay for those services. Um, and because of fund accounting, because of the way counties and cities and any municipality operates, you can't just take it out of some other fund and put it into that one. It has to be specifically for mental health services. You can only tax so much for that and you can only spend it from that bucket. And in our case, it's not near enough to handle the need. So the, the county supervisors then have to lobby the state legislature right. to get that to get those changes. Right. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you do that directly, or how does that happen? Yeah, we do that directly and through lobbyists. Um, our county and others hire lobbyists who spend their time in Des Moines and 
you know, they spend time with us to understand the problem, and then they spend time talking to the legislature. Um, you know, and, and twofold. Uh, one is to badger them, which is, you know, we, I don't know if that's the right term, but um, that's, that's the way people think of it, so it's something they can relate to. But more importantly is to provide them the talking points, the, the information, the, and not, you know, an encyclopedia of information about it, but the, the one and two page, you know, PowerPoint type, um, get to the heart of the issue and quantify it in a way that, that the voters can understand. Um, that really helps the legislators. They appreciate that. Um, they can they can best understand you know here's what it means to my constituency um, if I vote for or against uh, something or if more importantly that I bring it to the floor as a sponsor um, uh, to change something you know that's sometimes the even the greater challenge it's pretty easy to sit back and vote yes or no but it takes guts and work and smarts to draft a bill that's likely uh, to pass um, and bring it to the floor through committee. Lobby on behalf of Scott County, um, what what determines what you lobby for? I mean, is that coming? I mean, you have to have some connect into the constituency. Is it- yeah, um, we we as a board, and, and I'm a week into this, so you know. <laughs> so I want ask. all the answers. I don't care. Yeah, quick quick exactly. crying. Okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we as a board uh, set our priorities and, and decide, discuss amongst ourselves what, are we, what do we need to do. Um, in December, late December, uh, we had a meeting where the county board, um, the uh, department heads in the county, um, the other elected officials in the county met with our local legislators, um, you know, the state and uh, the state um, uh, representatives and senators and um and our lobbyists and sat around the table and talked about okay mental health funding we talked about uh property tax backfill which is a a fancy term meaning that um the state uh gave relief to commercial property tax owners um but in doing so agreed to backfill to the counties the loss of revenue that they were experiencing because of that you know iowa got to be such high commercial property tax rates that it was detrimental to our ability to attract businesses and and help businesses grow. And so to give some relief to them meant that you were going to hurt the counties. And so the state said, well, you know, we'll take some money out of this bucket and and backfill to the counties. Well, of course, that was easy then, but now there's a threat that the backfill will go away and the counties will be left holding the bag uh, on that. So there's lobbying that goes on for that. When you guys meet around that table, um, the board and the, and the legislatures, is that um, Republican and Democrat? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's – and frankly, I don't care and I don't know and I, I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out who's on what side or the other. It, the, the neat thing is at the county level, the, the, the issues really aren't Republican and Democrat um, to speak of. Um, you know, it's just let's fix some problems, and and I enjoy that. I don't, I uh, you know, I've always been taught, and I subscribe to you know the notion of why bring up politics and and tick off half of your audience, you know, or or not know that you're going to offend somebody that you didn't intend to, you right. know. So one could argue that just working towards um, the greater good or the common cause, mm-hmm. whatever, however you want to say that, um, 
is kind of the role of the government, whether it's that local board or right. if it's a national national spectrum. It and sure it, should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's in a, in a perfect world, ruled by yeah. unicorns and skittles. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Yes, there are unlimited needs and limited resources. So the very difficult decision is is how we best serve the needs of all citizens. And and some days that means um, I've got to invest in um, tax increment financing to make this um, business deal happen. And the next day it's I got to find money in the budget to provide more mental health care uh, for the indigent who can't afford to provide it for themselves or pay for it themselves. Um, so which is more important? Ooh, that, that's not an easy one. But certainly you can't be only one or the other. You have to look out for every single citizen, try to put yourself in their shoes, listen to them, find them, uh, ask them questions, You know, figure out not only what they're need is and what they want from you, but if you can't help them, help them find other resources uh, uh, to, to provide help. Uh, so it's a lot of work, right. uh, but it's necessary work. I called this show Mr. Kenobi Goes to Scat County. It's a tribute to the great movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. One of the things Tony helped restore in me was the optimism of those elected to office. Sure, he's going to get a lesson in partisanship, but I still believe the vast majority of elected officials desperately want to help the people of their own town, county, state, and nation. In order to do this, they need to consider the will of the people and the goals of the elected group, who study the issues in far more depth than the people then evaluate outside forces which influence the two. If they don't, they have our voices to contend with. Your voice matters. Don't forget to use it. The entire system of government breaks down when ordinary voices in the United States quit speaking. Our government is based on speaking, debate, arguments, compromise, and resolutions. So remember when you speak to listen to your neighbor. Both are required for good government. It isn't only the people who show up in the boardroom, uh, usually to complain um, or voice uh, opposition for something being considered, who have a stake in or who care about that issue. Um, There are a lot of people like me who just kind of like to keep their head down and not raise a ruckus. And, you know, if something good happens, great, but I'm not going to go down there and, and speak in favor of it. I'm, I'm, I'm too afraid of getting yelled at, you know, type of thing. Right. And there we're Iowa nice, you know, there's a lot of people like that. Right. Um, and yet when something that affects you negatively comes about, well, sure as heck, there's going to be plenty of people down there screaming about it. Um, but so, you know, in my, in my conversations with city leaders, in my conversations with the community in general, um, and they ask what they can do to help, I always tell them, come to these meetings when you're in favor of something, not just when you're mad about it. You know, um, Come show your support for whatever it is that's being considered. Um, speak, your, speak your opinion. Um, 
you got to be thoughtful with your words. You got to prepare. You got to study. There's work involved, but um, but do that, please. Right. And if it's an organization that supports something, don't don't have just one person show up because then you're just one against fifty or twenty five or whatever the number is. Uh, bring a group uh, to show you know that there's broader based uh, support for something or opposition for that matter. Politically. People just assumed their government was going to work for them. And, yeah. you know, you, you post something on Facebook isn't the same thing as letting your legislature know you don't like what you like. Turning, right? turning your Facebook uh, uh, homepage uh, red, white, and blue to support France ain't going to change one dang thing, you yeah. know, or whatever color you choose for whatever other issue there is. Um, you know, write a letter make a phone call, go to a meeting, come up with some ideas as to how to help. But, um, you know, yakking about it on Facebook is, isn't going to solve anything. Right. I asked Tony how his faith finds expression through his role as a county supervisor. He referenced the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. However, listening to him, I heard the body of Christ is expressed in 1 Corinthians 12. Specifically, indeed the body does not consist of one member, but of many. It is important to note that government is not the body of Christ. That is a distinction reserved for the church. However, when we read 1 Corinthians 12, we begin to see the connection between community, our lives as a nation, and the body of Christ. If as a nation we fail to see ourselves as a community, we have no hope of enduring. In 1 Corinthians 12, our attention is drawn to the diversity of a community and the unity which holds us together, that is Christ. The body image works for us as a nation as well. We are a diverse collection of people who have never hid from our diversity, but have been committed to struggle through it. Sure, it has caused pain, hatred, and conflict, but has also guided us through many difficult times. No nation on earth has chosen to directly wrestle with its diversity, quite like the United States has. We cannot abandon it now. Not just diversity based on sexuality, spirituality, nationality, or race, but diversity of political opinion, right versus left, conservative versus liberal. More importantly, when we see ourselves as a community, it is easier to see Christ working, working in our personal spirituality, institutional churches, and the politics of government. It gives us freedom to claim individuality without losing sight of our collective relationship. In fact, Tony never really left the frustrating side of banking. It's just now he's trying to resurrect a sense of community in his role as a county supervisor. Remember, God has so arranged the body that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffer, all suffer together with it. One member is honored, all rejoice together with it. In the days ahead, consider not what you can do for your country, but how you can build community through your own individuality, so that our nation may continue to be a beacon hope for all. That's our show. I want to thank Tony for sharing and for his service to our nation. I want to thank you for listening and ask that in the days ahead, you pray for our nation and all its elected leaders. 
Speak the truth in love. Listen so others feel heard. And let's do the difficult work of building community together. Great things happen when good people work together to overcome great challenges. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Remember, people are hungry for a spiritual conversation and in deep need of hope. Go to OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org to find other shows and to sign up for the daily devotions. This is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Thanks again for listening.